Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Um, my name is Justin McGeary. I'm a regular host for the Christian Studies channel here. And today we will be talking about the book, How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from a Renaissance Education, published by Princeton University Press 2021. And today we're talking with uh, Scott Newstock. Uh, Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. It's good to be in conversation with you. Yes, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Your book, How to Think Like Shakespeare, in a a short 14 chapters, covers, quote, the key aspects of thinking and how to hone them, end quote. And it does this by using Shakespeare and the educational ideals of the Renaissance to help flesh out what education and thinking ought to look like. In addition to Shakespeare, there are a number of other notable thinkers, authors, philosophers, poets, and even piano tuners. There's novelists, carpenters, and composers, and so many more folks who are given lines in this wonderfully woven book. Um, But before we talk about the book, Scott, would you just share a little bit about yourself? Sure. I teach in Memphis, Tennessee at Rhodes College, a small liberal arts college here. I'm a professor of English. I, I focus on Renaissance literature. I also teach first year writing. And in addition to my teaching and my scholarship, I have the charge of being the director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowment, which is a a wonderful bequest to the college from an alumna who was encouraging the college to create public programming for Shakespeare on campus as well as in the broader Memphis community. So I've been really fortunate to be able to work with those resources to host directors and actors and scholars and all kinds of people engaged with Shakespeare and sharing their enthusiasm for Shakespeare with the wider community. And really, I have to say, I, I want to give credit to the Pierce Endowment that that was, in, in many respects, the incubator for this book. A lot of what I was working on as I've been hosting those events over the last 15 years helped me refine what, what eventually went into the book. The book is kind of a distillation of much of what I've learned over that last decade and a half. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to see scholars taking scholarship uh, more broadly than just uh, the ivory tower. So that's that's wonderful. I wonder, building off of that, if you could say, you know, tell us a little bit about how you came to write how to think like Shakespeare. You know, why Shakespeare? Why him for education today? Sure, I. So I have, I guess I would say two tracks in my life, two big tracks in my life. One is I'm a, I'm a teacher and I, I love teaching works from this period. I've always loved thinking my way into the long tradition of rhetoric. And, and this is a period when there's the, the period in which Shakespeare lived had such a wonderful ferment in terms of thinking through um, the power of language, the limits of language and, and how, how do you extend your capacities through language. I'm a teacher and I'm also a parent and like any parent excited about the potential for my children as well as um, eager to help them find the best opportunities they can to flourish as as human beings um, 
both in the household and in through their educational opportunities. So I would say that the book in some ways represents a convergence of those two tracks of my life, which up until recently had been kind of parallel tracks, but became became one in the same, in part in response to uh, thinking my way through educational reforms of the last couple of decades, all of which were well-intentioned, some of which were effective and some of which were counterproductive in my in my view from speaking in my experience with my kids education as well as many many friends who are who are educators and so that, i guess i guess that experience helped lead me to think through and try to refine uh, what was what was valuable about a 16th century education that that produced some amazing writers shakespeare is one of dozens of writers from that era who we we still admire today and and step back and and to think about the the continuity and the and the sustainability and the viability of many of their educational practices, most of which look like things that we would not approve of for for good reason. Um, but uh, but I think when you when you when you're able to stand back and reflect upon the valuable aspects of that education and and how that sometimes counters current educational jargon, I, that that's been really a refreshing thing for me for me to do. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I wonder, you opened the book talking about thinking, um, and the book is obviously about education. What what sort of relationship do you see between thinking and education? Well, I think one, one, the first thing that comes to mind is that sometimes we get trapped into imagining that education is primarily about training. And it, it, is, it is about training a certain set of skills up to a certain point, you know, we all need to function in the world and we all need to make our way in the world and make a living. So I'm not, I'm not dismissing the need for training for skills and education, but ultimately, you know, why are we, why are we training those skills? What, you know, what do we, what do we want of ourselves as, as human beings? And I, I think the goal has to be something higher than just training for the skills or, or just passing the next exam or just being able to get the right marks on the next assessment. So I I think we're in one of those odd moments where, um, we have, you know, usually we like to have means that are working towards an end. And in the world of education, it seems like means have overtaken the end that the means become their own end and the means of passing this assessment. So you can pass the next assessment. So you can pass the next assessment. Uh, that that's not a, that that's a that is not an inspiring view of education, and it's it's not the kind of thing that motivates either a teacher or a student to to delve into this activity and to commit themselves to it to it fully. So one of the things I was just trying to do as I was I was as I was frustrated about certain aspects of current educational lingo and jargon was to step back and think, okay, so assessment does not seem to be the right way to talk about one of the most wonderful things that human beings can do is be engaged in a in a immersive educational space so what what might be a better way to describe the activity that's meant to hone thinking or meant meant to cultivate the resources for thought and to and to me i kept on coming back to the notion of of a craft environment or a craft workshop being I think a more a more accurate and more compelling way to describe the way that refining thinking happens in in all kinds of circumstances. Um, I, you know, I think I, I would like to think that everyone has had a good teacher or a good coach or a good mentor or a good instructor at some point in their lives, and that they probably have had a diverse array of people who have served in those capacities for them. You know, what 
what's in common behind all of those disparate people? Um, it's not the topic. It's not even the environment or the space in which that transaction happened. But I really do think it's something more like uh, the ideal of the craft workshop where something that's been honed over time is transmitted from an experienced practitioner to someone who is eager to learn that activity. And I would like to think that the activity of education is ultimately towards making us better thinkers and more articulate uh, more articulate human beings who can express ourselves in all kinds of unforeseen circumstances, not just people who know how to pass a test. Yeah, that's, that's great. And actually that was one of the things that I found was the chapter on craft on craftsmanship was, was one that um, surprised me. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's an apt sort of uh, more robust descriptor of what is happening in learning in education. Um, and, and you point out uh, that Shakespeare himself, uh, as well as in that time period, the, the craft uh, apprenticeship, these were things that were very much on his mind, very much in his writing. Could you speak a little bit to that, in uh, the sort of apprenticeship craftsman in, uh, in Shakespeare? Sure. I mean, we have this cool biographical fact that Shakespeare grows up in an artisanal household, that his, his family, his father was a glover and his entire family was involved in making gloves and selling gloves and tailoring them to the market. And and Shakespeare was not alone in that experience of growing up in an artisanal craft household. Christopher Marlowe's father was a shoemaker. Other people's parents were playwrights, or they made salt, or they made curtains. And part of what you're getting with this generation of writers is people from non-aristocratic, non-elite backgrounds who suddenly had the opportunity to send their children to publicly funded education, that there was a, a massive uh, transition in investing in education for training schoolboys in Latin. And, um, and that was new. Um, that, was a, that was a new development um, to have a, a space for that kind of cultivation of thought outside the church and outside the private tutor of the aristocratic household. So that, that to me is, is pretty intriguing when the more you think about that as a, as a, what kinds of things would a young person learn growing up in an artisanal workshop household? I, I think that if you, if you take it quite literally about fitting a glove to a hand and thinking about the market for gloves that season and how it differs from the market the previous season and how you have to compete with others who are selling your same product, but you have to differentiate yourself in terms of quality. It's not a, it's not a great leap to use that same language to describe what it's like to make a play and to be competing with other playwrights and to be collaborating with other playwrights and to be worried about how the audience is going to respond to your writing and to, and to tailor your writing to the audience and frankly, to tailor, tailor your writing to the acting company as well. When, one of the, the things that was unique about Shakespeare's playwriting experience was he was tailoring roles to members of his own repertory Kingsman uh, company that he he had a working relationship with these actors and he could write roles specific to their strengths and to their abilities to perform a soliloquy or to juggle or to uh, spontaneously do improvisation. And so I think, I think it's, it's not a leap to say that the kinds of virtues and values in a workshop artisanal craft environment 
do carry over into kind of more cognitive environments like writing, like speaking, like performing. Yeah, that's great. That's, yeah, I think that was one of the fascinating kind of um, points of connection that you made both between his, his uh, formation and then sort of how that then played out in his, his own uh, craft as well. So one question that I, I would like to ask before uh, kind of early here is if you could make one change in modern education, uh, where would you start? Wow. That's a, that's a big question. I mean, the, there, there's no one thing that's going to solve everything, but I, I guess, you know, thinking about Shakespeare's education, one striking feature that comes to mind is here's someone that did not go to university that did not go, um, did, did not advance beyond the secondary level of education, but had an incredible education in, in the, in the grammar school, in the what we would consider primary and secondary schooling. And I'm sure you know this, that American higher education has historically been kind of the envy of the globe. That's, that's partly changed in the last few years, but, you know, we invest enormous resources on post-secondary education and not the same proportionate resources on primary and secondary education. So, you know, one way to look at the model of Shakespeare's life is the model of what can be done when really high quality, wonderfully intense, small scale education is supported nationwide and, and how enabling that is for, for class mobility and for, for human achievement. Um, you know, post-secondary education is really in many ways I'm not. I'm, I'm not trying to undermine my profession, but in many ways, it's too late for the really uh, rich, crucial, um, important incubator stage of education. So, you know, a Shakespearean education really would be not focused on the university level, and it would be focused on devoting and redirecting a lot of those resources to wonderful, high-quality um, primary school uh, institutions. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, the if age age eighteen is is too late to, in in many ways for a lot of the things that we really care about in a citizenry. Um, and and as we know, not everyone goes to college. So wouldn't it be great if we were graduating students from junior high and high school who had great facility in language and enormous curiosity about the world, a, a sense of of their relationship to past human achievement and and a great inspiration for the potential for their own achievement in their own in their own lives that that to me would be a, a great example of of the most ambitious form of a shakespearean education yeah yeah that i, I think that that's interesting especially cuz really by the time a lot of uh, students who do go on to university you know often a, a lot of their interests have been killed <laughs> uh, so yeah it's 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 unfortunate you know, I'm sure you've seen there's been a number of headlines these last few months of uh, articles about decline in humanities, humanities enrollments at, at the university level. And I, I guess one thing that I found really distressing and striking about those accounts are th that, they're, that they're missing any account of what's happened to humanities education at the primary and secondary level that um that the 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 way that reading is taught and the the way that we've we've fixated on on skills over engagement with wonderfully complex text i, I think that that by the time someone's 18 that they've they've already had a, a love of reading kind of sapped out of them by by a, an unfortunate assessment regime regime and a, a dynamic where 
um, they've not been exposed to rich texts. They've been exposed to decontextualized things designed to help them prepare for the next exam that they have to take, but not really to cultivate a wide-ranging love of reading. So I think the, I think the decline in humanities enrollments at the post-secondary level is obviously partly driven by economic anxiety, but it's, it's also really driven by a, a collapse in humanities education at the primary and secondary levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're swimming, we're swimming downstream of 12 years of, of an educational system, and that can't be reversed easily at age 18. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So uh, we are having some technical difficulty trying to actually talk about technology, but let's try this again, Scott. Um, you talk about the importance of place uh, and the role that an actual physical setting plays in education. And you also talk about the challenges uh, that a lot of modern education has with regards to particularly an infatuation with digital technology. Could you talk a little bit about the the problematic nature of digital technology and the importance of place? Sure. I mean, I think if if I had to generalize, I, I, I think that we all want kind of magic solutions or silver bullets that would, would suddenly solve a host of problems in our society and in education in particular. And, and, and so I think we're very prone to see the shiny new object, the shiny new technology as the thing that will improve everything. And, you know, nothing, nothing can do that. Education's incredibly complex, complex and human development is inordinately complicated. So we should just be skeptical of, of, of any solutionism that would, would claim that if, if we just did X education, we would be better. It's education entails so much that it, it, it's a whole host of kind of practices that you need to, to refine it and, and hone it. And it, it has to be continually, um, it has to be continually refined and honed over time. So that's a general statement. In, in particular, I think we do tend to fixate on whatever the newest digital technology is as surpassing anything that we've done before. And I just want to be clear, you know, I I turn to all kinds of digital resources in my classroom and, and all teachers perforce have had to deal with uh, digital resources these last few years during uh, remote teaching environments. So I'm not, I, I hope it's clear that I'm not speaking against d- digital digital technology wholesale, but I do think that it's mistaken for us to imagine that the only kind of technology is digital and to forget that a book is a kind of technology, an amazing kind of technology writing on a piece of paper is a technology and it, it does certain kinds of things that other technologies don't enable. Even the carving out of time is a form of technology. You know, I, I say to my students, you know, we agreed that we would all be here for these 50 or 75 or 90 minutes. That is a, that is a techne in the old deep Greek sense of a, of a kind of a, of a shaping, a shaping practice. So I, I think we underestimate the non-digital technologies in in learning and in educational environments, and and we tend to overestimate the the potential for for digital technology, and we, we often get distracted by by the shiny new thing. And I think that's related to your question about place as well. You know, it's it's a little odd. the The book w- was written; it was drafted long before the pandemic, and it, it came out in April two thousand twenty, right as most people were going into lockdown and, and were having to shift to all kinds of digital fora. And I, I hate to say it, but all of my worries and fears and skepticism about online fora for these kinds of exchanges that I cherish in the classroom 
were, were all of those fears and worries were and reservations were proven true. Um, I, I, I don't know really any teacher who thought that having a Zoom uh, book discussion was better than being able to discuss that book in person. Now, certainly there are cases where, you know, you and I are not, we can't be in the same place. It, it would be prohibitively expensive for us to be in the same place at the same time. And this is a, a, a good substitute for that ideal of being in the same place. But I don't, I think it's, it's strange to think that it would, it, it replaces being in, in the same place. I think the, I think the ideal still holds. And it, I think the other thing that I learned from having online conversations during the pandemic was they, they're, they're a good enough substitute for people who already are experienced in having conversations. So, you know, I was on a number of nonprofit boards that had to meet online during the pandemic and it, you know, it wasn't great, but you know, it was, it was functional. We, we got on and we were able to do business and vote on concerns, but, but we still lost something. We lost the informal interaction that we would typically have before and after a meeting. We lost the ability to read each other's body language, the ability to kind of take the temperament of the room, the, the ability to uh, recognize when someone was upset. And I, I, uh, I, I just don't think that that's fully translatable to online fora, at least at, at, at this moment. And it, and it's really not appropriate for the younger children that the younger you go, the, the less likely it is that they've been habituated to the complex give and take of a, of a seminar conversation. So again, to call on my own children's experience, um, the younger, my, the, the, the youngest of my children really kind of got into a, a torpor in that first month, um, in part because it, it was so incredibly alienating to be a, a, a seven or eight year old and to be staring at a screen all day long. Um, it was, it was, it, it was not healthy in all, in all kinds of ways. Um, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to introduce a slight note of skepticism about solutionism or kind of techno utopianism about, about how things will be solved by the latest digital technology that we, we need to step back and think about, you know, why we're using this tool, if it's appropriate for this circumstance and this occasion. Um, but not to think that any one thing will solve everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's helpful. And uh, I'm certain that uh, plenty of listeners will uh, resonate with your comments about the recent, uh, so, you know, uh, pandemic online learning. Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, the funny thing is, this one is the, I just have to jump in here. The funny, yeah. there is a funny dynamic in, in, in the ed tech world where, there, and I say this in the book, that there's there's two there's two criticisms that always come up. They're, they're the perennial criticisms of anyone who indicates any skepticism about the latest technology. And the first criticism is, you're doing it wrong. It's, it's your fault. The user is doing it wrong rather than the medium is actually fundamentally flawed or limited in some way. So that it's often like an accusation against the teachers, like you're doing it wrong. You don't know what you're doing. And, you know, maybe it, initially that's the case with the new technology, but oftentimes even when you've mastered the technology, you recognize how limited it is. And then the second critique is, okay, it's not great now, but the, just wait till the next version, you know, wait till the next generation. And that there's always, there's, that's part of that techno utopianism as well. Like just off the horizon will be this kind of promised land when we'll finally magically surpass all of the human limitations that we, that we have. And I, I just don't think that's the case. Um, or if it is, it's a, it's a very inhumane 
uh, horizon that we're looking at. And maybe that's what we're seeing now with the with the kind of threat of AI and um, large language models kind of going off, spinning spinning in their own directions. But um, I just I, I'm really uh, I'm I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a version of those two criticisms of that you're either doing it wrong or or the next version will be better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, somewhat related to the the questions surrounding technology is you also have a, a whole section on attention and focus um, as a, a key part of learning and thinking. Uh, yeah, could you speak to what does it mean to be attentive to focus? Why is that important? Sure. I, you know, again, I would begin by acknowledging that we are distractible creatures. That we, you know, part of what's successful about any any um, any living creature is that it, it is attentive to its environment and it does it is it, it's important to be distractible it's important to be worried about something out of the corner of your eye or it's important to be um, nervous about a noise that um, that might be indicating some kind of danger so you know it's it's nothing new that that we are distractible and 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 all kinds of philosophical and religious traditions have known that for thousands of years, and and in response to that, have honed practices to to help us become more attentive when we want to become more attentive, whether that's through prayer or that's through meditation or other kinds of focal practices. Uh, so, you know, this is this is the longstanding permanent fact of human existence that that we have all kinds of attention and we have chosen and we deliberately uh, find ways to focus that attention. And so I even bring up a great sermon by John Donne in the book where he's, he's talking about the problem of distraction when you're listening to a sermon, uh, a, a 17th century sermon and saying, I, I know you're not really here right now that you're, you're sitting there in the pew and you're thinking about, Oh, but now's a good time when everybody else is at church. I could be going shopping and I could be getting my errands done. And, and you know, to be honest, I'm not really here either because I'm thinking about how I should have prepared better for this sermon and how I could have read this other thing. And I, I've actually heard better versions of this sermon before. And because we're, we're, we're not giving our full attention to, to the moment we are, we, we're not present in a way we're we are kind of absent we have that term absent-minded and and that's a real thing so you know educators have always fretted about how to how to draw focal practices in to to an object under scrutiny i, I think it's i don't want to sound like a curmudgeon but i think it's indisputable that the the digital potential for distractions in our lives and in, in our devices has amped up that, that natural human tendency to be distractible because something is always available to us instantly in our hand, in our pocket to, to distract us if we want to be distract us and we don't want to be bored. So it's a, it's a perennial challenge, but it, it seems like it's become um, slightly more, more daunting in, in the last you know 15 or so years since the rise of smartphones. Yeah, 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 that is for sure. I'm certain plenty of teachers could speak to challenges and policies that they have around the cell phone alone. So um, one thing, so the book is how to think like Shakespeare. And I, I guess I'm interested too, in you mention a number of the practical ways that Renaissance education educators were teaching their students, some of the exercises, uh, the role of imitation. I wonder if you could speak to some of those how to sort of, what did they do to actually what were the actions that they were doing to teach people to think? 
Sure. So the, you know, the the caricature that we have of Renaissance education is is that it's it's nasty, brutish, and long, and it it involves corporal punishment and aggressive rote memorization of Latin declensions. And you know, that is that's indisputable that that is a good portion of what was happening in the acquisition of uh, the, the preliminary primary stages of, of the grammar school acquiring the Latin facility. But the goal of the of the upper levels of that process was to, again, find a verbal facility in this second language, in this, in this foreign language. And there were many brilliant, uh, very effective, longstanding practices that were deployed towards that end. The most fundamental one that I think undergirds most of them is, is again, facing a human fact, just like we're distractible, we also are imitative creatures. And we can either use that to good ends, or we can just ignore it and let our imitative capacities just kind of flounder with whatever comes in front of, comes in front of us. So the, the principle there is, you know, you, you want to become a better writer in Latin, whether you're going into the clergy or whether you're going into the court or an ambassador ambassadorial career, you need to be fluent in Latin. So how do you how do you do that at a very high level? It's one thing to to memorize the verbs and memorize the vocabulary. It's another thing to find out how to um, how to become articulate in that language. And part of it is through playing off of our human capacity for imitation. So many of the exercises were built to encourage students to imitate good, complex models of Latin, and in fact, um, imitate so well that you would sound like that particular voice, whether that's Plutarch or that's Seneca or Cicero. Um, there, were, there were brilliant exercises that were created to, to help you get to that end. So one, one example of an exercise like that is to take a Latin source, translate it into English in your notebook, Put away the Latin source, maybe go do something else for an hour. Now come back to your English translation of the Latin source, but without the Latin source to view, take out a new piece of paper with a new notebook and translate that English version back into Latin. Now take away the English version and compare your double translated Latin to the original Latin. And if you can go through that circuit and have it sound something like Cicero, have it sound something like Plutarch, you have done an amazing task. You have, you have, you have, you've intuited style, you've intuited rhetorical moves and verbal tics and habits to emulate another voice. And if you can do that with a whole series of different voices, uh, ideally that, that gives you an incredible kind of repertory of what you can do for your own voice as you're developing your own voice. And this is a, you know, this is a kind of truism that we that we acknowledge in, the sports world or performing arts or in, in, in poetry or other kinds of artistic performance that a developmental stage to, to find your own voice or to find your own bodily comportment is to imitate other people whom you admire and then internalize their kind of repertory of moves. And then those become your signature moves or that becomes your signature voice along the way. And then there were a whole, whole series of other really fascinating exercises um, in a similar spirit of, of forms of imitation, writing in, writing in a series of different forms. And again, that, that sounds on the surface like a really pretty banal practice, but it has amazing consequences. And you know, one of the amazing un- unexpected consequences is learning how to become uh, fluent in another language helps you become 
fluent in your own language, that the that you have a kind of self-alienating process of uh, anyone who's learned how to speak a second language knows that if you're thinking through French, that helps you think through your own language that seemed transparent to you when you first were when you first were speaking it. And I guess the last practice I would just add here quickly was again something that on the when you first glance at it, it seems really basic. They uh, humanist educators like Erasmus and other figures like Vives recommended that you keep a notebook and you write down quotations of phrasing from writers whom you admired. Now that is it's hard to think of something more basic than that. It's just a it's just a notebook full of quotations or a commonplace book as they described it. But in the process of doing that, you you start to learn how to emulate the voice of those figures whom you admire. And eventually that becomes a giant archive for you to incorporate into your own writing. And you can you can see someone like Michel de Montaigne as as a writer who comes out of that commonplacing tradition, as someone who engaged with the text that he read intensively and then was able to weave those texts into his own voice and his own his own prose. So it's I, what I love about thinking my way back into these educational practices is at first glance they do look backwards and oppressive and and old-fashioned, but the more you look at them, the more you realize how enabling they are and how rich they are and how um, how they, they create opportunities for eventual autonomy on the, on the part of the, of the people who are practicing them. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot there that I, th- I found in the book quite fascinating. Um, and I'm glad you actually mentioned the, uh, the kind of commonplaces journal because throughout your book, you, we've m- all these quotes. I mean, so you place a huge emphasis on language and rhetoric, right? So there's attention to words, etymologies, but then you have all these quotations. And I'm just kind of curious as to um, how did you kind of conceptualize this book? Because for the reader who hasn't seen the book, even physically yet, you have, you, you really do weave these quotes into um, each chapter, each section, every page has, uh, you know, I guess at least you know, anywhere from three to half a dozen or more of these uh, allusions, references, direct quotes. Yeah. How did you conceptualize the book in that way? Uh, how did you bring it all together? It was, you know, in some ways it does come out of the commonplacing tradition. What I was doing was I was, I was thinking back to, you know, writers whom I admire, teachers um, whom I love and, and handouts that I had produced for my classes over the decades and things that I had read somewhere and thought, oh, that's really cool. That seems to consolidate something that I, I love about education or, wow, she really phrased that well. I, I would like to come back to that. So I had a kind of slow building um, archive of, of, of material that I had developed over the years. And then at a certain point, I kind of shifted and realized like, well, this, this actually is the book and this is enacting one of the principles that I'm recommending in the book. So, you know, I think the danger or the risk of that strategy is that the reading that when you first begin reading the book, it's a, it's, it might be an off-putting experience to have that density of, as you said, three or a half dozen quotations woven per page. But I think once you, once you get into it and, and it starts to become familiar, it has a, it has a, I, I hope a, a kind of orchestrating effect where, wow, this is a, this is a lot of voices that are speaking together here or, or singing together here on the page. And, and the things that are 
you know, emblematized in Shakespeare's career are not unique to Shakespeare and they're, they're transhistorical and they're transnational and they, they lead up right until our, our present moment, um, in the contemporary world. So the, the goal in the way was to kind of, you know, translate a, a lot of stuff that I love and admire that you might see in, in a, you know, a quotation book, but to animate it with a, a narrative, some narrative stitching. And I think, again, the risk is that it, it has a certain density on the page that, that might at first be a, a little bit of an impediment. But I think once you, once you start to figure out how the rhythm works, it, it, it starts to flow better. And that as, as, as I, as you know, the chapters are very brief. They're only about 10 pages each. So they're designed to be something that you can pick up and digest and, and put down. And it, it, the book is not really, it, it's a series of meditations or, or essays rather than a kind of through line argument across the whole volume. Yeah. I, I actually really enjoyed that feature of the book. Um, it's kind of, a yeah, a polyphonic, uh, uh, feel, but all towards the same end. Uh, so, uh, it's actually interesting too, cause I was actually for our, um, uh, late medieval Renaissance history class with this week, we were actually reading Montaigne. So, uh, it, it, I actually did see the similarities there. So, um, yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed it, but I definitely was like, wow, this, this is incredible. Like just the, the challenge I would think of making it all pull it all together. So I was just curious as to how you did it was, that. It was challenging. I mean, it, it and the, a lot of stuff ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Uh, I have another, another book's worth of, or, or more of quotations I, I could have turned to, but you know, I, I, I spent a long time reading widely and kind of delving into paths of thought and, and harvesting quotations. And then I, I, I just stepped back and I started to try to cluster, cluster them, how they, how, how they started to fall out topically. And then um, once the once the chapter titles started to consolidate, then the, the the chapters kind of began to write themselves in a way that there was there became a natural flow to to gathering these voices together. Again, the the risk the risk is there, there are many risks associated with that strategy. You know, one is it's it's wildly it's it's both trying to make a a claim that's historical about a form of education five hundred years ago, four hundred years ago. But it's also trying simultaneously to say that there are transhistorical elements to that form of learning, and so it, it it does risk kind of leaping around wildly from century to century or millennium to millennium uh, on the same page. But I I'd like to think that the effect is, as you said, polyphonic and and cumulatively that you start to see that it's what I'm identifying is not unique to the humanist 16th century, but rather. Um, has a great deal of affinity to all kinds of periods as well as global cultures. So that's a lot to do in a very short book, but that, that was, that was part of the ambition of the book. Yeah, that's, I, this leads me into one of my uh, last uh, questions, which is you, you look, your last chapter looks at the, the theme, so to speak of freedom. And particularly uh, you look at how James Baldwin, uh, his reception of wrestling with Shakespeare. I, I wonder if you could just uh, comment on that. Why do you conclude the book there? The, I, I knew from the beginning I wanted to end the volume with the chapter on freedom because part of the, the whole premise is, is that this type of education is, is a series of, of what looks like traditional constraints, but are actually wonderfully enabling. And that the, the ultimate goal is to, is to achieve 
again, full human capacity or, or autonomy for self-expression, which is, I think, a form of, of, of free thought and of, and of free speech. The James Baldwin essay that I cite at the end is, is really, I, I, I wanted to reserve it for that moment because I think it embodies basically everything I'm saying in the book. In fact, if, if, even if people don't read the book, I hope they go read this, this essay um, by James Baldwin. It has a, a brilliant title. The title captures you before you even read the essay. The title of James Baldwin's essay is Why I Stopped Hating Shakespeare. And it was a, it was written by request for the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth in 1964. There were a number of writers and artists and public intellectuals that were asked to say, you know, what, why do you love Shakespeare? And Baldwin, in a brilliant, typical, wonderful Baldwin-esque way, kind of inverted the question and said, why do I, uh, why I stopped hating Shakespeare, which immediately puts you kind of back on your heels, like, wait a minute. So he, he hated Shakespeare. So why did he hate Shakespeare? And then wait, what happened that would lead him to stop hating Shakespeare? And now what is, what's his relationship to Shakespeare now? Is it more ambivalent? Has he, does he love him? Or maybe he doesn't love him. That's saying you stopped hating something is not the same as saying that you now love something. So he stages a, a wonder in, in a beautiful, brilliant, um, characteristically dense essay, stages his own relationship to Shakespeare, whom he calls at the beginning. He says, I, th- when I was a child, I thought that Shakespeare was among the architects of my oppression. Um, that this thing, this figure was alien to me in all kinds of ways. And I thought it was not part of my inheritance. And tellingly, it's actually when Baldwin goes to France and has a distance from the United States, as well as his experience of the English language, that he has a renewed appreciation for Shakespeare and sees himself and frankly sees all of us as rightful inheritors of any figure, any cultural object. Um, Shakespeare's an easy kind of shorthand for culture writ large, but uh, but he really he really does mean it that there's nothing that's alien to him, and and in particular he aligns um, Shakespeare with the blues or sorrow songs and and the richness of the language that is that is part of a universal heritage, and um, it's just a it is just a wonderful essay. I, I assign it on the first day of class for my Shakespeare students. I, we read it aloud and we kind of unpack it. It's 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 brilliantly constructed rhetorically. It has all kinds of wonderful self-corrections that it makes where he he ends up questioning himself or he's kind of recapitulating his own self-doubt in his process of coming to own Shakespeare and making making Shakespeare his own. So again, I can't recommend it enough. It, it really, I, I wanted it to be the pinnacle of the book because it does, it does do everything I'm trying to do more eloquently and in, in shorter space. Hmm. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a wonderful ending and um, yeah, really uh, fascinating because the book isn't, uh, as you just noted, only about Shakespeare, but uh, much more expansive. So uh, very, very enjoyable read. Um, Thank you so much for giving of your time. And uh, our listeners probably won't be able to realize the kind of technological difficulties that we've had <laughs> uh, to make this interview happen. Um, so thank you for sticking it out there. Uh, before you go, though, I, I wonder if you could just uh, share maybe what you are working on now. Uh, what what uh, is there anything we can be looking for or? Yeah, what are your current projects? Well, as as it happens, I'm working on Montaigne right now. I'm I, uh, it, it's really an outgrowth of this book. Um, I I've always loved Montaigne, but as I was preparing for the book and and thinking my way into the book, I I, I really came to appreciate 
even more deeply his compositional habits and his his intellectual formation. And in particular, I'm uh, editing a selection of his essays on education, and I'm working with a, a brilliant translator named Tess Lewis, who's making a, a fresh, vibrant translation of those selected essays. And then I'm, I'm providing the introduction and the, the kind of footnote annotation apparatus. But the, the goal is to be able to share these wonderful idiosyncratic reflections on education with a new, a new generation of readers who might not be familiar with Montaigne. And, you know, Montaigne has his own idiosyncratic education. He was trained in a Latin speaking household and he later claims he forgot Latin and yet he has amazing facility with quoting Latin within those essays. And so if you kind of work your way backwards from the achievement of the essays and you think like what kind of education would lead someone to have such a, a wonderfully free flowing, innovative, uh, self-questioning, uh, urgently uh, pensive mind, then then I, I think it's worth reflecting on on what he recommended in education. As strange and as fascinating as it was and impractical as it was, I think it's it's worth trying to think through his own thoughts on on education. So that's that's where I am with that. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I've I assigned some Montaigne uh, to my students, so uh, we'll keep our eyes uh, peeled for that. So yeah, thank you for this wonderful book and thank you for your time, Scott. Thank you so much, Justin. This was a pleasure.